haven't used this pulpit in a few months. It's like an old friend is cracking and falling apart. I'll invite you, if you have a Bible, uh, to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. Um, and as you turn there, I would try to give you a brief overview of what I hope to do with the little time I have this morning. To consider the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical claim, the center of the gospel, and its relationship to the gospel, its significance um, in the Christian belief system. And I can think of no passage that better does this than 1 Corinthians 15. In many respects, the entire chapter is devoted to the issue of the resurrection, but in particular, the first 11 verses. I'd like to begin by reading them, and then we will try to make some observations quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Lord God, as we briefly look at this passage, we pray that we would respond by receiving it, by standing firm in it, and by holding fast to it by faith, that we might come to partake of the blessings and the benefit of Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We may understand its central, pivotal significance. In Jesus' name, amen. The choir's final song this morning before the message was, was a list of beliefs we confess. And Christianity as a belief system is exactly that, a system of beliefs, many doctrines. If you grab our doctrinal statement, it's more than one page. It's, it's robust. And yet, the Bible doesn't place all beliefs as equally weighty. I mean, I think truth matters. Whatever God has said matters. But Paul gives us a category here in verse 3 of truths that are first order, of first importance, mission-critical truths. There are some truths that I can have a belief on, that I can have a healthy, good discussion with another brother or sister with. And there are some truths that I believe mark out the body of Christ. And the gospel in its summary and its significance would be that central circle. Now, the way the Apostle Paul comes at it, and we're, like I said, we're going to move quickly. There's a lot in this passage we're not even going to touch on. He's going to talk about the power and the priority of the gospel message in the first three verses. 
what it is um, and what it does and how we ought to respond to it. And then he's going to lay out what it is. So the the first thing to get across is that the gospel is a message. It has content. It makes propositions and claims. You, You may have heard preach Christ and if necessary, use words. That's like feed the poor and if necessary, use food. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It is a message. Now, we should adorn the gospel with godly lives. Amen. We should adorn it with good works. We should dress it up as Paul's uh, metaphor in Titus. We not make it look ugly and hypocritical. But the gospel is a message. And it's a message, according to this passage, you can receive and believe or you can reject. This is what makes one a Christian. And so let's just move quickly with the power and the priority of the gospel. Paul says to them, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he lays out the gospel. So first thing to notice, what does the gospel do? It stabilizes all those who receive it. Paul, Paul says, in which they are standing firm. And it's the notion of having a firm footing in stability. The Corinthian believers, those who are holding fast, he's going to consider the possibility that some of them are not. But for those who are being faithful, those who are holding to the gospel, it provides a stability in an uncertain life. Corinth was notoriously wild and wicked, and yet these Christians had stability for their life. It gave them a foothold on which to stand. It stabilizes all those who receive it. Now, no, now notice the, the witches in this passage. Which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. So they received it, and upon receiving it, they're standing firm in it. Earlier in this book, Paul uses the same verb to stand in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And it makes it clear the picture of standing is stability. You're, you're stable. You're well-grounded. So if something comes along and shoves you, you don't fall down. You've got your feet under you, you've got your shoulders over you. And, and the gospel provides a certain amount of stability for living. But that's not its fundamental purpose. That's, that's a great help. For those of us who know Christ, who've put our faith in him, the gospel gives us stability in an unstable world. But point B, more significantly, it saves all those who hold fast to it by faith. He says, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to it, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So notice he equates them believing, and they're holding fast to it. So if you hold fast to, notice this word, content, it's a message. If you hold fast to the word, or the message he said earlier, preached, it saves it delivers from death. It, it provides forgiveness. The gospel is fundamentally, it, it does many things. It, the gospel, as it's embraced by a family and a community, will bear fruit in the community. The gospel will bear fruit in justice, in good works. But fundamentally, it's a message. And first and foremost, it produces forgiveness and salvation. And some downplay that to emphasize on its secondary effects because the people who are justified, the people who are forgiven, the people who are indwelt by the Spirit should and will live different lives. And that will have effects in their community and in their town and in their nations. Amen. But that's not its first significance. It is 
powerful to save. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why not, Paul? It is the power of God to save for all those who believe. So just to summarize, we don't move too fast. It's fundamentally a message. It's a claim. It's a proclamation. It's made of words. It's a message that can be received and believed or disbelieved and rejected. It's a message that provides salvation to those who receive it by faith and gives stability for living. Now, Paul makes it clear, and in our study in John, if you've been with us these weeks, you know that faith is something active and persistent. And I, and I know on a, on a morning like this, where we've got more people than we usually do, some of you may have prayed a prayer, exercised faith, so to speak, 10 years ago, it didn't do much, and you may think, well, I tried that. Well, Paul gives us a way to understand that. Whatever it is you might call faith, that doesn't cause you to cling to this message, to persevere to this message, Paul says is useless. That's what he says. By which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's something, Paul says, you can call believing that doesn't cause you to hold fast, it doesn't persevere, and it's vain. James talks about dead faith. So if you're here and you think, well, I tried that you know, 10, 15 years ago, and it didn't work for me, you, you didn't follow the instructions as written. And, I, and then I'd re-invite you to try and to receive Christ. Um, those who are truly saved persevere in faith. True faith never ultimately dies. And Paul gives that warning, and it's good for us to hear that. He's writing to a church he calls them brothers, and yet he warns the brothers, hey, make sure, make sure you're holding fast to this message. So it's a message received and believed by faith, cleaved to, held fast to, and then finally, it's of first importance. It is of first importance. Elsewhere, Paul comes out when he deals with the gospel with guns blazing. He, he can, we can disagree. We can have differing consciences. Romans 14 gives us different consciences over eating food. And meats and drinking and other things. Christians can differ on consciousness. Christians can differ on doctrinal views. We can have differing views on the end times. We can have differing views on the modes of baptism. We can have differing views on a number of things. And it's not to say that this relative and there is no truth. It's to say we can disagree as family. We can't disagree on the gospel. There's a small circle of truths laid out here. First importance truths that... To deny, as much as I may love you and I want to be kind and nice to you, you're, you're playing for the other team. To use a sports metaphor, which I know is a stretch for me. Um, no, these, these are first order truths or fundamentals, you might put them. There is a circle of importance. And it's right for us to lovingly identify lines. This is why certain think certain groups that call themselves Christians and churches for, for having a different gospel. Hopefully we're loving, we're kind, but these, these are first order issues. And we, and we recognize the distinction in, in Galatians one, six through nine, Paul writes, I'm astonished. that you so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, so get that. If the resurrected Apostle Paul with a cohort of angels were to show up here and say, hey, I, I, I goofed, I messed up, and I'm here to correct what I said. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema, damned to hell. 
That, that's the priority. It's of first importance. We, we, so, so if you know anything, if you believe anything, understand this. Even if you understand it clearly to know that you reject it, know what you're rejecting. Understand the Christian's gospel claim. Gospel just means good news. And this is the heart of Christianity, these, these truths, these claims. This is the core of what it means to be a Christian. Christians are those who receive by faith, cleave, hold fast to these truths. That, that's a Christian. What are they? So now point two, the centrality and certainty of Christ's resurrection. Now, the, the truths don't simply say Christ's resurrection, but you can see by the, the weight of the verses and words what priority is given to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's just read this. As, as best as we can tell, there's some sort of meter or poetry to this. Paul is likely here quoting an early Christian creedal statement or hymn. It's possible Paul came up with it himself, but as he does elsewhere, it's, it's possible or likely even that Paul is aware of a well-constructed Christian creed or hymn or song, and he's putting it. These are the truths the early church centered and gathered around. Let's read them. And I, and I just have them word for word, at least in the ESV, in your outline. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And as best as we can reconstruct, verse 6 then is Paul adding on further. The, the creedal, the hymn statement probably ends at verse Five. Can't be certain on that point. Then he appeared to James. Oh, no, sorry. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That's where we see the effect of salvation. Paul isn't saved by working harder than all of them, but as a result of God's grace, he worked hard. But the grace of God that is in me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So quickly, the first claim of this message is that Christ died. That Christ died. And we've got to pause and unpack the word Christ, because Christ is just an English transliteration, not a translation, transliteration of the Greek Christos, right? And Christos is just the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, from which we get Messiah. So Messiah, Christ, an anointed one, which is just what Messiah means, are English, Greek, and Hebrew for the same thing. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Which, which brings a whole bunch of Old Testament explanation of a coming anointed one. Uh, for our purposes this morning, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, as you see twice that in accordance with scriptures, he is the promised one the Lord would send. He is the promised one the Lord anointed to come. He is the king, the son of David, and the son of God. He is the, the divine human Christ who has come. That Christ died. That's the starting point of the gospel. On, on last Sunday, we consider why did Jesus take on flesh? And the simple answer is so that he could die. He, he took on mortality that he might die. And the gospel message begins with that Christ died. 
They died for a purpose. And again, there, there are themes in the cross, Christus, Victor, and other things we can point to that are true. The cross shows his solidarity with us. And the, the cross shows his, his, his humility. And the cross shows his love. But fundamentally, he died for sins. He died for sins. He died as a sinless substitute. The cross, again, getting back to what the gospel message fundamentally deals with is salvation. And it's a salvation not from purposelessness and not from oppression and not from, from a dull life. But fundamentally, it's about salvation from the guilt and penalty of our sin, which presupposes some content. The gospel presupposes you and I need saving for our sin. In other words, contrary to what so much popular wisdom today goes around where we are victims, and and we can truly at times be victims. Fundamentally, we're not victims. Fundamentally, we are criminals. Fundamentally, we are those who do wrong. We're transgressors. Now, because we live in a society of transgressors, we can be transgressed ourselves. That's true. But your core identity is not someone who's been wronged, but someone who does wrong. And the gospel brings the good news to remedy that. The gospel brings the good news to remedy that. If you can recognize that you do rightly sit, stand under the judgment of God for what you have done that is wrong, regardless of what others have done to you. If you can own that. There is a savior. There is a sacrifice for you. But again, these are the parts of the gospel people reject. They stumble over. They're fine with the God showing up and saying, hey, you're great and I love you just the way you are and keep it going. But the gospel fundamentally is a remedy and a cure for people who cry out, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter, when he sees the Lord depart from me from a sinful man. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for people who do wrong. I, I do wrong. The gospel's not for good people. Christ died for our sins. A sinless substitute. This is Christ's own statement for his purpose for why he came. This is also what was predicted in scripture. Pastor Daniel looked at this. We, re- we read those passages on Friday night. For the sake of time, I'll move on. And he, Christ died for our sins, and he did so in accordance with the scriptures. This is, again, part of the plan. It wasn't an accident. And part of what we can marvel at in the gospel is that this has always been the plan. Let me just read to you some of the passages. Psalm 22, a focus of Pastor Daniel's Friday message, in part. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Written in a culture and a time when crucifixion was an unknown form of punishment. This is the psalm Jesus quotes from the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. That very psalm speaks of one whose hands and feet have been pierced. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Or the the Isaiah passage that we've sung and heard sung this morning. Isaiah 53. I can find it. There we go. Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yes, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That is the central claim of the gospel. I could read many other passages. Why does Jesus die on a cross? He dies as our substitute on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God, removing it, making atonement. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, as predicted. There's your blank. As predicted. That he was buried moving quickly. The significance here, I think, is that he physically died. There can be no mistake on this. It wasn't a spiritual death. It wasn't a swooning. Only bodies get buried. He was buried. It was a public event. Guards watched the tomb. And then what we celebrate here, that he was raised. That he was raised. And from here on in this passage, the rest of this chapter just deals with unpacking the implications of this, the implications if it's not true. The, the resurrection, if you read the book of Acts, the resurrection is the historical event that propels the gospel forward. The resurrection is the central vindication and proof that he was raised from the dead. Point blank here on the third day, resurrection. What's the significance of that? Well, it's predicted, but most significantly, on the third day, you've already got decomposition. We know that from John 11, when he, when he came and he raised Lazarus. And he comes to the tomb and they say, Lord, it's been a few days. By now, there's an odor. So he dies, he's buried, and then three days go by. He's clearly dead. No debate on that point. And then he is raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And again, this is all part of the plan. All part of the plan. And... This reality that we celebrate every Sunday morning, but most specifically at this time of the year, every Sunday morning is a celebration of the resurrection. The reason the early church shifted their worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday, the first day of the week, is that's the day the Lord was raised. They began calling it the Lord's Day. First day of the week. Interestingly, the Jews ended their work with rest at the end of the week. We now start our week with rest He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers. And notice he stacks this up. I just want to quickly draw a couple, couple of, of points here. First, there are many witnesses to the resurrection, at least in the first instance. Many, many witnesses. Surely that's part of the point Paul's making. I'm going to argue, and you're going to see in just a minute, that, that the reality of the resurrection is absolutely critical to the Christian gospel and the Christian message. And, and God has not asked us to. Paul is not expecting us to take this momentous claim on the testimony of one or two people. He's just stacking people up. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Now understand what he's doing there. What he's doing there is not only are there many witnesses, he's inviting verification. Verification is welcomed. What Paul's saying is there are so many people who witnessed the resurrection and most of them are still alive. Implication, if you bump into one of them, if you find one of them, verify what I'm saying. In other words, Paul is not saying I'm some great high priest, just take my word for it. Rather, and again, this is, this is the heart of the issue that it's a historical reality. It's a historical claim. 
It can be verified and verification is welcomed. In the first instance, verification is welcome. Now you can say, okay, 2,000 years later, no, there are not many of them are alive. But I'll flip it a different way to you. He, he appears to these people. Now we know extra biblically, we know from sources outside the Bible, we know from well attested to historical f- facts that 11 of the 12 apostles died horrible, martyrous deaths. My mother's going to tell me afterwards, martyrous is not a word, and she's quite right. They died, they died, they died terrible, torturous deaths. And they died over hundreds of miles of geography on different continents, and they died over years. And the point I'd ask you to consider is this. Even though the, the eyewitnesses are not still alive today, what explanation can you give for why someone would claim to be an eyewitness to an event and suffer torture and death when all they have to do is be like nah just kidding they couldn't be mistaken over the claim they're making we we know that people will go down and suffer for a delusion for a lie if they believe it but the claim these first generation witnesses are making is that they themselves have seen they can't be deceived on that point either they saw christ raised from the dead or they didn't and they weren't getting money or fame or power, all that came later with Christendom when the Roman, Roman Empire and the church unite into Christendom. Then power, pomp, gold rings, and things came about. But in the first instance, these, these guys are the scum of the earth, hunted, killed, despised. And they, they all go, go down faithfully. They all go down without recanting. What possible explanation can be made for why 11 men over, over many years, multiple continents, would, would die for something they would have to know as a lie. They could not be deceived on that point. No, I think their evidence is credible, very credible even to us 2,000 years on. Just, you can just chew on that, but what possible reason would these men do this? They weren't even all together cheering each other on, one by one. All they have to do is say, no, no, we, we made it up. And they don't. So even though, unlike those Paul's writings in the first instance, we can't go find some of these witnesses, the, the witness of their testimony, which is the Greek word martyr, witness, which is so identified with witnesses who would not recant under death, that now that's pretty much what it means, is still a powerful evidence he appeared to Cephas, the 12. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. Yeah, Paul's inviting verification, most of whom are still alive. Verification is welcomed. And then Paul finally ends, and we're going to have to just bring this to an end in a moment. He appeared to me. We get Paul's own personal testimony. Why such an emphasis? Why, why such significance given to the resurrection? Well, because the, the Christian gospel stands or falls in this historic reality. In a unique way, unlike other claims of other faiths, Hinduism. If you could prove, if you could prove the various figures in, in Hinduism never lived, I don't know if it would shake much up. Buddhism, if you could somehow prove Patama the Buddha didn't live, I don't know you'd do much to destroy Buddhism as a philosophy. If you could somehow verify and prove Christ did not raise from the dead, go home, give up, this is worthless. That, that's what Paul says. That's what I'm trying to make clear. Christianity is not fundamentally about giving your life meaning. It's not fundamentally about uniting your family around a common ethic. It's not fundamentally about giving you some morals and ways to live. It does those things. That's not what it's fundamentally about. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. 
if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if you want to turn Christianity into a social gospel religion that just has benefits for this life here and now, we of all people have most to be pitied. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We have been found to be misrepresenting God. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ, Paul, Paul's saying, quite plainly, what is the value and worth of Christianity if Christ was not historically raised from the dead? It's worthless. It makes us pitiable. Just go eat, drink, be merry. Be a nihilist. Just, just go enjoy the vapor of your life because there's no point, there's no meaning. Go home. Paul is willing to say that plainly, everything hinges on the resurrection of Christ. The, the earliest church, and then Christendom, thought it was such a significant event that they changed the calendar. Yes, you can call it common era, but we all know what it really stands for and what really set the date. That, that Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection is the central historical event in all of time and space. That, that is the Christian claim. Understand that. If, you, that's, if you're going to reject Christianity, reject that understanding. And so the, the fundamental question you've got to come to grips with is, is, is this historical reality? Did this happen? And you're in a room full of people who say, yes, yes, it did. A man raised from the dead, never to die again, nearly 2,000 years ago. And this is, this is in the book of Acts, as the apostles preached the gospel, this is, how they, this is what they led with. This is what they, this is what they preached. And, and the historical reality that their witnesses came through again and again. Let me just read to you some of these passages. Um, Acts 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. That's, I think, the significance of being buried. You can, there, there's a tomb. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he is not abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 2.32, we are all witnesses. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Acts 13.30-31, God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Acts 17.30-31, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's pause. God commands everyone in this room, all people everywhere, to repent. Why? On what basis? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And if you've been studying us in John 5, we know who that man is, to whom all judgment's been given, Lord Jesus Christ. What proof do you furnished for such a claim. And of this, he has given assurance. Some of your Bibles will say proof here. 
by raising him from the dead. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the central claim, and the logic makes sense. If the scriptures predicted the resurrection, if Jesus predicted his resurrection, and if he was in fact raised from the dead, and if there are in fact hundreds of witnesses, then does that not validate every other claim he made? Of course it does. Of course it does. Does that not make the Christian gospel and its claims unique? Of course it does. And, and so that's how the gospel went forward. We, we've seen him. First John starts, what, what I've seen with my eyes, heard with my ears, touched with my hands. The resurrection also proves his sinlessness. That's the other significance. That people were crucified was not uncommon in the first century. But there's usually the mark of the lowest of the low. The scum of the earth. Non-citizen thieves. Seditious rousers of trouble. That's not, that's not significant in, by itself as a claim. But the resurrection vindicates the one who was crucified was sinless. The one who was crucified. Notice how the text says he was raised. The father raised him. That's the father's seal that he's pleased at him. One who was righteous and sinless was crucified. And the resurrection proves his righteousness. And Paul ends this passage. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. My, my hope and prayer this morning is that you would believe this message. Um, this is the heart of Christianity. If, if you leave with anything, understand that. This, these claims that Christ died for our sins, on the cross, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to many witnesses. That message, using words and speech, is what is proclaimed by the early church, the apostle Paul, and that is the message that we must receive by faith, hold fast to, and if we will, you will be saved by this message, by this Savior. If you hold fast, you will stand firm. You will have stability. You will have life. And all the other things that we can talk about will, will come as well. But that's the central issue. There, there is a Savior. There's a sacrifice. There's forgiveness for people who are fundamentally guilty, first and foremost. That is why we rejoice. Because we, we who gather here, we're, we're not, we don't gather because we're better. We gather because we're worse I'm so bad, God's son had to die on my behalf so that he wouldn't destroy me. That's how bad I am. If you're willing to acknowledge that's how bad you are, there's forgiveness, life, and salvation. Now, much more we can see in this passage, but I'll close with a word of prayer, and we'll sing our closing song. Lord God, we rejoice that, that you have kept your word, that what the scriptures foretold in due time, in the right season, came to be. You sent the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die on the cross an agonizing death for our sins. And Lord, we, we rejoice that you have furnished great proof to this message by raising him from the dead. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give our minds focus. There's no other issue to consider than whether or not these things are true, whether or not nearly 2,000 years ago, the one nailed to a tree rose victoriously from the grave.
And Lord, for those of us who profess faith, give us the faith to persevere, to cling, to cleave to this message, this word, that we might find stability in it. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.